0: Coming up next, the podcast of Ancient Roads, Real Israel Talk Radio, episode 20-14. In the Berich HaDashah, that is the New Testament, there are five references to the idea of adoption as Paul was relating it to his theology. Stay with us. Okay, welcome back to another podcast of Real Israel Talk Radio. This is the Ancient Roads Podcast. I'm Avi ben Mordechai, And on our broadcast today, we're going to dive into this idea of adoption, as Paul would have understood it, at least as I think he would have understood it in his day. Given that he was Jewish, he had a context and a culture that was, uh, you know, from the ancient Jewish Hebraic way of life and thought, and uh, you know, he was uh, well trained uh, in rabbinic and Jewish ideas and Hebraic thought, and uh, the the Hebraic theology of the uh, Tanakh, the Torah, the prophets, and the writings. So, with all of that context, he obviously had to have something in mind, and I'm not entirely certain that um, you know that we should go in the path of the Roman viewpoint, although Paul, of course, grew up in that Roman culture. So he naturally would have, uh, you know, considered those kinds of ideas in perhaps in a legal way. But I don't think that this is totally what he was after. Uh, I think he was speaking to people in his day that would have understood the idea of adoption. But uh, clearly he had a Hebraic cultural and contextual um, understanding of it. So. Let's take a look at that here, okay? I want to start with Romans eight fifteen. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the ruach, or spirit, of adoption, by whom we cry, Abba, Father." Now, let's take a look at Romans eight twenty-three, And not only the creation, says Paul, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit, or the Ruach, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption. The redemption of our bodies. Romans 9, 4. Paul says these are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. Galatians 4, 5, Paul says that his understanding of Yeshua's teachings was to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption. And the last passage that I would like to quote from this context comes from Ephesians 1.5, that Yehovah predestined us for adoption through Yeshua HaMashiach according to the purpose of his will. Now, again, There are only five verses of uh, this kind of idea in Brihadashah. Uh, Three of them are in Romans, and then there's one in Galatians and one in Ephesians. Now, our um, interest, I think, is not so much in these nuances, but rather in how the concept of adoption, as Paul would have understood it, how that would have uh, been, uh, uh, um, you know, defined in his mind, how this idea is kind of bouncing around in his head. I mean, yes, he was Roman, of course. He uh, grew up in a Roman context, in a Roman world. But also, Shaul grew up in a Hebraic, theological, Jewish, rabbinic world as well. Now, there is an academic work uh, titled Roman Law in the Writings of Paul, and uh, it comes with a subtitle, Adoption. And it was uh, published uh, oh uh, back in 1969 uh, in the Journal of Biblical Literature. In that article, it talks about the legal device, that was found in many legal systems by which a person would leave his own family in the Roman world and enter the family of another. There is a distinction from Jewish law or rabbinic Hebraic law, obviously a source for Paul because... You know, even in Greek law, it would provide, you know, a necessary context for understanding the whole metaphor. But yet, as I say, in the case of uh, Jewish rabbinic law, in the mind of Paul, he, I think, was arguing uh, that it had included other measures, other theological ideas to achieve this. continuity, that it was bouncing around in his head. And I think that Paul had this idea of adoption from a theological viewpoint as Torah was teaching it, and not so much as a Roman idea. In fact, uh, while there may be, in fact, some potential parallels to ancient Near Eastern law or Roman law, Greek law, etc., I'm going to suggest that uh, these are much too remote from Paul to be meaningful in the parallels, okay? But I can simply say that it's not exactly the same. So I would say don't let this idea rub you the wrong way. In ancient Hebraic Jewish culture, the concept of adoption was really something a little bit different. If a man had died, his brother automatically became the head of the house. So there was no need really for a legal adoption process, not really. Now, when a child was born in Rome, or in a Roman context, and there was a biological connection, the parents had the option of disowning the child for a variety of reasons, even in the Greek culture as well. The relationship, therefore, was not necessarily desired by the parent, nor was it permanent. But if a child was adopted, uh, particularly in a Roman culture, it meant a couple of things. One, the child was freely chosen by the parents, actually desired by the parents. And two, the child would be a permanent part of the family. Parents could not disown a child that they adopted, which is going to play in very interestingly with our understanding of what Yeshua was talking about in Matthew 28, about not leaving us as orphans. In a Roman context, any adopted child received a new identity. Any prior commitments or Uh, responsibilities or debts or connections to a, a family, all of that stuff was erased. New rights, new responsibilities were then connected, linked, taken on, however you want to put it. Now in ancient Rome, the concept of inheritance was also very much a part of life, not something that began at death it was actually a part of everyday life so being adopted made someone an heir to their father or joint sharers in all the possessions fully connected and linked to that adoption process so that's where we really have to think about this idea theologically as shaul would have understood it. So rather than diminish the beautiful reality of being B'nai Elohim or sons of God through creation, Paul's theology of the spirit of adoption essentially takes this fatherhood idea, the fatherhood of the Almighty, the fatherhood of God, and weaves it into our, uh, into our everyday life, reminding us, That we were fully desired by the Almighty, fully loved, that we have taken on a new identity through Yeshua, that we were created in and for heaven. That's an important idea, that we were created in heaven and for heaven, or for the kingdom of, of God. But even now we are heirs to the Almighty, to God, to Elohim, and as Shaul says in Romans 8:17, co-heirs with Messiah. So therefore Shaul is saying in his theology that we're crying out and we're saying Abba, Father right from the very core of our soul of our life of our of our neshama okay so as a really a fuller reading of uh, romans 8 it is approaching this as though we are adopted sons and daughters of elohim of god and we are intimately bound up in a salvation that Yeshua HaMashiach actually acquired for us or won for us. He paid for it. So it's as though Yeshua himself bought our sonship, bought our familia, our family connection. He bought it for us. Okay, so let's uh, take a look first at the idea that is going to be the foundation for all of our understanding of the adoption concept in the mind of Shaul, in the mind of Paul. I want to take us into a principle that helps us to understand what happened back in the Garden of Eden, back in Gan Eden. If we don't understand what happened back in Gan Eden, the Garden of Eden, I think it is going to trip us up so that we're trying to, therefore, put all of the or New Testament theology into a context of Greco-Roman thought, culture, and uh, those kinds of things in Paul's day. And uh, that's the mistake that I don't want to make here. Okay, so here in verse 1 of uh, Psalm 139. It is written, O Jehovah, you have searched me and known me; you know my sitting down and my rising up; you understand my thought from afar; you comprehend, or you know, it's kind of like a winnowing idea, um, as though you were winnowing a chaff or something like that. Okay. You winnow or comprehend my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. For there is not a word on my tongue, but behold, Yehovah, you know it all together. Verse 5, you have hedged me behind and before and laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, he says. It's high. I can't even attain it. Where can I go from your Ruach, your spirit? Where can I flee from your face or your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Gehinom or Sheol or hell, even there you are, he says. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall fall upon me, even the night shall be light about me. Indeed, the darkness shall not hide from you, but the night shines as the day. Real Beautiful idea. The night shines as the day. It's still bright. The darkness and the light are both alike to you. Verse 13, for you formed my inward parts. This is important. For you formed my inward parts. Okay. He says, you covered me in my mother's womb. Verse 14, I will praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works, are your actions. Marvelous, wonderful, marvelous, fantastic. And that my soul knows it very well. Then verse 15 my frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought or woven in the lowest parts of the earth. Your eyes saw my substance being yet unformed, and in your book they were all written the days fashioned for me, when as yet there were none of them. This is unbelievably fantastic. But I want to stress something here. There is nothing in this Psalm, Psalm 139, that I can find that talks about Jehovah owning us. This is important. It's not as though I see some kind of ownership idea in that psalm. What I see is a uh, uh, is a creation idea that he sees who we are, he understands what we are, he knows our frame, he knows what we are he knows the inward parts that we're growing in our mother's womb when we are conceived, he understands all of that but I don't see an ownership idea as though to say that Jehovah owns us or We belong to his family. That I don't see. And that is an important principle. Now, if I'm wrong, write me and correct me. The fact that it is written in Psalm 139, verse 15, my frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought or woven or put together in the lowest parts of the earth. I want you to pay attention to this idea of the lower or underworld part of the earth. Now, when Yeshua was speaking to the religious leaders of his generation, the Purushim, the Pharisees, he asked them, a number of questions in John chapter 8. Particularly here in verse 43, he says, Why do you not understand my speech or my word? And uh, I believe that will be connected in the Aramaic to the term memra, memra which is the Aramaic equivalent of the Hebrew term devar, devar, or word. So, memra and word, those are linked to the Greek idea of the logos. The logos, as uh, Philo of Alexandria taught it in his writings also in his day. So, he says, why can you not understand my memra or my logos or my word, my devar? Because you are not able to listen to my word. You're not able to listen to my devar, to my memra. You are of your father or your Abba or your Av in Hebrew it's Av in Aramaic the sister language to Hebrew it is Abba Abba father or daddy you are of your Abba the Nahash, Nahash. and that is going to take us back to Genesis chapter 3 verse 1 where we would understand that definition, that character, as the devil or the serpent. Then Yeshua goes on to say, And the desires of your Abba, or your Ab, or in English, of your father, you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning. And Yeshua goes on to say, he does not stand in the truth. Now, why is he talking about that idea of Genesis 3.14, saying that the Nahash does not stand in the truth? Why? In Genesis 3.14, Yehovah Elohim said to the serpent, Because you have done this, this uh, beguiling of the woman, you are cursed more than all of the beasts or the cattle and more than every beast of the field. Then he says, On your belly you shall go and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. This serpent had legs. So when he says that you're going to go on your belly, it has a clear reference to what Yeshua is saying to the Purushim or to the Pharisees of his day. He says to them that the Nachash or the serpent or the devil, whatever you want to call him, he does not stand in the truth. Well, obviously. He does not stand in the truth because his legs were removed from him. He cannot stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. His legs were cut off. Now, I would like to show you something very interesting about how the legs are cut off from truth. And that's why he can't stand in the truth. Let's take a look at two Hebrew words in the block letters of Hebrew that is the Babylonian script. I'm not taking it over to the um uh to the paleo Hebrew because that predated Yeshua. I'm talking about the Babylonian script uh that uh, comes out of Babylon and Yeshua of course was quite familiar with that particular way of writing Hebrew. I think Yeshua is making a reference to these block letters of Hebrew when he's kind of playing with this idea when he says you don't stand in the truth because there is no truth in you. If you take these three Hebrew letters it will be Aleph Mem Tav. Aleph, Mem, and Tav. Now, on each of those three letters in Hebrew uh, block letters, you will have two legs on each letter. The Aleph will have two legs, the Mem will have two legs, and the Tav has two legs. So you have the word Emet. That is truth. Now let's come back after we take a quick break and let's do the second half of our study here on adoption and ownership and the transferring to another family. We're going to be back in just a moment. You're listening to Avi Ben Mordechai and the podcast of Ancient Roads, Real Israel Talk Radio. Episode 20-14 Welcome back to the podcast of Ancient Roads, Real Israel Talk Radio. Join us as we continue to explore and discover insights into the ancient Jewish and Hebraic ways of understanding and interpreting the Bible's lessons and narratives. Once again, here's your host, Avi Ben-Mordechai. Welcome back to the second half of our hour podcast on the idea of adoption and how to define it as Paul would have understood it in his day. We were addressing the idea of truth and the lie from John 8, 43 through 44. And Yeshua was saying to the Purushim, the Pharisees of his day, that The desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from Breshit, from the beginning, and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own or from his own resources, perhaps, for he is a liar and the father of him. So, what does this refer to? He is talking about this idea. Let's take a look at two Hebrew words in the block letters of Hebrew. That is the Babylonian script. I think Yeshua is making a reference to these block letters of Hebrew when he's kind of playing with this idea, when he says you don't stand in the truth because there is no truth in you. If you take these three Hebrew letters of the term truth, it will be Aleph, Mem, Tav. So you have the word Emet. Emet. Aleph, Mem, Tav. Each letter with two legs. Aleph, Mem, Tav. That is truth. Now the word for a lie in Hebrew Is sheker, sheker, and that is spelled shin kuf resh, shin kuf resh. There, you're going to see a problem with the legs in the term sheker, shin kuf resh, which means a lie in Hebrew, a lie, the shin has a, uh, you know, a bottom-rounded kind of look. The kuf has one leg on which it stands, and the reish has one leg on which it stands. So, compared to emet, truth, aleph, mem, tav, each letter with two legs, the word sheker, shin, kuf, Resh, two of the letters have legs, but it's only one leg. So the sheen has a rounded kind of bottom. The kuf has one leg, and the reish has one leg. So the word sheker will topple over. The term sheker in Hebrew block letters, as Yeshua would have understood those letters in his day, those letters aren't standing on any foundation they can't because they are not formed as a foundation of two legs each letter they have no foundation they will topple so emet or truth can stand on its own whereas sheker cannot stand on its own it topples over it is wobbly It will fall over. So that, I think, may have been in Yeshua's understanding as he was playing with some of these ideas. Well, to understand this whole conundrum that is going to lead to Shaul's theology, I'm going to take us again back to the creation story. We've always, always got to go back to the creation story, folks. We've got to do that. Because if we don't go back to the creation story, we're not going to follow the pattern of the salvation that Yeshua keeps talking about. And that is so woven, intricately woven into the texts and the narratives of the Tanakh, the Torah, the Prophets, the Writings, and also the New Testament. Now, in the Jewish Second Temple period, in the days of Yeshua and Paul, there was only one person, there was only one character that would have been able to save or deliver all of humanity from what had taken place in the Garden of Eden. They knew that person to be Messiah, Mashiach. They knew that that was going to be only accomplished through Mashiach. So when Yeshua appears on the scene, he is identifying himself with the Word, with the Memra, with the Logos, with the Messiah figure of the Hebrew Scriptures. He is going to identify himself with that person in order to accomplish salvation, help, deliverance for all of humanity. And that is why his name is Yeshua. From the root Yud, Shin, Ain. Yud, Shin, Ain. Or So this is going to lead us to the question, from what do we need salvation, help, or deliverance? From what? Answering this question is going to bring us full circle to understanding the adoption principle. Because again, according to Psalm 139, and many, many other places, we are woven by Jehovah. He has made us in secret. He has intricately made us. But that does not mean that we are in his family. Not so. And if people think, Oh, we're all children of God. Well, that has a very specific connotation, a very specific meaning. And we're going to address that on another podcast, not here on this one, because it gets way too uh, detailed, and I don't want to take the time here to talk about it right now. But the issue is adoption and salvation go together beautifully. And we're going to look at it. So again, I'm asking the question, from what do we need salvation or help or deliverance? From what? To answer the question, we have to go back to Genesis chapter 2, verse 9, and Genesis 2, 17. This is almost... Uh, For lack of a better term, please forgive me, but it's like a mantra. I have to constantly bring us back to these two passages of the creation story. If I don't go back there, we're going to get lost in the theology. And Shaul, I believe, was drawing all of his theology from the Genesis chapters 2 and 3 narrative. He was addressing all of his theology from the narratives found in Genesis chapters 2 and 3. And so was Yeshua. If you ask me, Yeshua was doing the same thing. So it's clearly a very, very important idea. So let's go back to Genesis 2 9. Out of the ground, Jehovah Elohim made every tree grow that is pleasant. To the sight and good for food. The tree of life, called the Etzachayim in Hebrew, was also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And that in Hebrew is Etz Hadat Tov vera. Now let's turn to Genesis 2 16 and 17, as I often do in many of my podcasts. And Jehovah Elohim commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the etzadato Vera, that is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of him, it's a him, not an it, you shall surely die but the Hebrew teaching from that text actually says for in the day that you eat of him in dying you will die so it has the two deaths built into the text there in Genesis 2.17 it's the Hebrew term mot so from that I derived the idea, the principle, that our physical and spiritual DNA, we are a genetic copy of something that happened in the garden from the moat to moot" problem that took place when Adam and his wife, his woman, ate of that tree of the knowledge of good and evil. We are a spiritual and physical DNA copy of that tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. I am simply calling it entanglement, entanglement, which, by the way, it's going to have a link to why we do Sukkot, because the roofing, the roofing structure of the Sukkah, is in the Hebrew term entanglement. Oh, yeah, the entanglement. But it's not the entanglement from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It's the entanglement of a new family, a new adoption. And Paul talks about it. But we're not going there today. <laughs> we'll deal with that later. So let's get back again to this idea of entanglement it's a DNA physical and spiritual corruption that enters into Adam and his woman his wife and it gets passed down to all of humanity in the name of Adam he becomes the prototype he becomes the model for which all humanity is built We are all corrupted because of Adam. We carry uh, an entanglement from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And worse, we are all corrupted and we are all owned. Oh, yes, we are all owned by that tree and the owner of that tree, or if you wish, the master of that tree. The master of that tree is Nahash, the Genesis 3-1 serpent. That is what is in control of that tree. The Etzadah Vera is owned. It is controlled. And the fruit that comes off of the tree branches of that particular tree is called sin and death. So we were in Adam. So originally, Adam, when he was made and created by the word, by the Dvar, by the memra, he was perfect and holy and complete and not entangled with that tree. No, not at all. He was perfect and holy and complete and entangled tangled up or entangled with the tree of life that is his creator, the Messiah. But when Adam and his wife, his woman, decided to jump the family, to leave the family that he had been made and created in, when he gave himself over, Or, I should say, when they gave themselves over to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they became slaves of a new master. And in that, there was a bond that was connected or linked or made with that new master. An ownership bond. This should help you to understand why Paul talks about the bond servant and why Yeshua talks about it, and why in the Torah, the prophets, and the writings, there's this whole idea of bond slaves or bond servants. It's about a bond that gets transferred to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil from the tree of life. So we're going to need an adoption We're going to need an adoption, a family transfer. So I'm saying that all of this family transfer stuff is not going to really be directly connected to some uh, uh, cultural idea in Paul's day involving Roman legal law. Although I'm sure he's using it in that kind of a context to reach out to the people. But he's bringing his listeners. He's bringing his um, uh, audience into the Hebraic background of Genesis chapter 2 and Genesis chapter 3. Which is exactly what Yeshua was doing in his teachings also. So again, let's go back and revisit that one verse In Psalm 139, verse 15, I will praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works, your actions. And my soul knows very well. My frame was not hidden from you. The psalmist says that. When I was made in secret, And skillfully wrought or woven or connected or linked in the lowest parts of the earth. Because that is the image of the fall of man. We started in the kingdom of heaven with the creation and the making of Adam. We were going to be linked to that. But the fall of man brought us to the lowest parts of the earth. Just as it says in Luke 10:18 when Yeshua said concerning Nahash the serpent, I saw Satan or Nahash or the devil, I saw Nahash fall like lightning from heaven. And we know that something very similar happened to Adam and his wife from the narrative uh, described at the end of chapter 3 of Genesis where it says that they were cast out of the garden and when that happened they lost their inheritance they lost their family connection and inheritance to their Abba that is their father they lost that and they were given the world as their inheritance. So therefore, when they lost their Abba or father in heaven, they essentially got transferred to the lower parts of the earth from the upper parts of heaven. And so that would, of course, explain why Yeshua said in John chapter 3, verse 3, to the great rabbinic mind of the day, Nicodemus, when he says to him, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born from above, he cannot see the kingdom of God or the kingdom of Elohim. And what is the kingdom of God? What is the kingdom of Elohim? Well, we know what it is. The kingdom of Elohim is the Garden of Eden. It is Gan Eden. Gan Eden, the kingdom of Elohim. Turn to Matthew chapter 12, verses 34 through 37. Yeshua says, brood of vipers. Whoa. Why would he say brood of vipers? John chapter 8, verses 36 through 39. Yeshua is speaking to the Purushim, the Pharisees of his day, and he says, If the Son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. And what is that freedom that Yeshua is referring to? Well, we know what it is. It's the disentanglement from the etzadah Vira, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Disentanglement from the ownership of the master of that tree. So therefore, Yeshua says, I know that you are Avraham's seed, but you seek to kill me because my word, my Memra in Aramaic, my Devar in Hebrew, my Logos in Greek, my Word in English has no place in you. I speak what I have seen with my Father. See that? I speak what I have seen with my Father, because He is the Word. And when we come into Yeshua, His Father becomes our Father. And we, therefore, can call Him our Father when we seek to come through the path that Yeshua purchased for us through that salvation. But until we come through Yeshua, we cannot possibly call His Father our Father. That's impossible. He's not our Father, But he did form us, make us. He never let creation go. Not at all, not even in the fall of man. Everything in the creation still is subject to the authority, the will, and the power of Jehovah. But our ownership is to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That is our master. He is our master not Abba Shabbat That is our father in heaven. That comes later when we come through Yeshua. Ah! So let's continue on here. Yeshua says, I speak what I have seen with my father and you do what you have seen with your father. Oh, that's a very interesting statement. They answered, and they said to him, Avraham is our father. Oh, really? Avraham is your father? No, Yeshua makes a statement about that, and keeping and doing the works or actions of Avraham, which was that he believed and followed and accepted and was waiting for Messiah. That's why he was counted as righteous or just, according to Genesis chapter 15, because Yeshua said in John chapter 8, Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He saw it and was glad. So he knew what, was, what he was looking at. So herein again is our adoption principle. Now, let's come back and let's do the second half of our study here on adoption and ownership and the transferring to another family. You've been listening to the podcast of Ancient Roads, Real Israel Talk Radio, with your host, Avi ben Mordechai. We hope you have discovered fresh insights into the ancient Jewish and Hebraic ways of understanding and interpreting the Bible's lessons and narratives. This podcast was brought to you by the Outreach Ministry of Coming Home. www.cominghome.co.il If you have questions or comments, direct them by email to questions at cominghome.co.il Again, questions at cominghome.co.il Yah willing, we'll hope to see you for the next podcast of Ancient Roads, Real Israel Talk Radio.